I'm Nick Zola. I teach religion here. Uh, I teach New Testament is my area of specialty. But as you've already seen from the title, this is going to go a little bit backwards, right? This is going to go what happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And to try to fill in some of those gaps that maybe you have wondered about uh, in your reading or uh, in your experience in church. Uh, There is a handout that has kind of gone around. I didn't print enough because, again, I didn't expect uh, this to be this popular. So so (laughs) this is great. Um, So I'm sorry that uh, if you didn't get one. But I have um, cards up here in the front. So after class, if you really want a handout, uh, please don't hesitate. My email is right there to send me an email. I will gladly send you a PDF of the handout to uh, let you know what everyone else uh, is missing or has in front of you. Um, Over the course of today, we will talk about uh, a number of ideas and a number of um, categories, I should say. One of the categories will be referred to as the Old Testament Apocrypha, a scary word, right? Uh, Another category will be the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, an even scarier word, (laughs) right? Another one will be the Dead Sea Scrolls, a mysterious word that maybe you have heard something about. Your first question might be something like this, right? Am I allowed to be reading this stuff? Is this okay? Are we supposed to have this, right? Uh, some years ago, I, uh, I taught a course on this, uh, and, uh, and as I was researching textbooks and what textbooks to assign, I landed on this particular textbook, and as I was filing down, I noticed uh, this particular review from Amazon. I'd go elsewhere. I had to buy this book for a class, wouldn't buy it for any other reason, confusing with a lot of random books in it. What book was that, you might ask? It was the Holy Bible. (laughs) Yes, indeed. It was the Bible itself. But the difficulty, I imagine, for this poor student who had to purchase this book, is it was the Bible that included the Old Testament Apocrypha, right? A Bible that had more books, perhaps, than this student was used to reading. And, uh, and so the student was confused. So my object for this class is that you should be confused no, no longer, right? That, uh, that you can now purchase the New Testament uh, or, and the Old Testament with the Apocrypha added in between. And you'll have some idea of what it is that you're reading, maybe some idea of why you haven't been reading it in the past uh, and what's in it and why it's not so scary and doesn't, doesn't need to be so scary. All right, there's a number of ways that we could go about doing this. I could go through kind of a chronology of this time period. Uh, I could go through uh, and list a whole bunch of um, the books that show up in this time period and kind of take you through each one of them. But I'm not going to do any of those things, as you might have guessed. Instead, what I'm going to do is give you my top ten reasons for knowing something about the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a couple chairs here. Uh, There's one in the front down there, and there's one right here if you want to make your way around. Uh, So, this is my top ten. This is my top ten reasons for knowing something about what happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And here we go. Looks like it's a little cut off, but that's okay. Alright, so, reason number one. Reason number one, the so-called silent period. Just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you have heard this term before. This term of the silent period. All right, so I was hoping that at least this would be, uh, you'd be aware of this. So here's a nice graph. There are many things wrong with this graph. I'm only going to cover one of the wrong things today. Um, And one of the wrong things is, I think I even have a little laser pointer here, right? 
is that there is this section, and particularly my assumption is that most of you are coming from a Protestant background. Most of you are coming uh, from a background in which you were raised with Bibles that basically ended at Malachi and then skipped about 400 years of history and then went into the New Testament period, right, beginning with Matthew and so forth. If you want to think about it in modern terms, it's a little bit like stopping with the Middle Ages, skipping over the Reformation, the Enlightenment, anything that's happened in the last four or five hundred years, jumping into today's period, and then assuming that somehow there would be um, complete transition from one period to another, right? Think about how silly that would sound if you're trying to understand everything that we're doing today by skipping over everything that happened in the Enlightenment or the Renaissance <laughs> or any of that, right? Going straight from the Middle Ages to the modern period. That's kind of what we do when we pretend that there were 400 years of silence in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and what I'm here to tell you today is that uh, I don't think any Jew at this time would have described their life that way. I don't think anybody would have said, man, it's been a while since God spoke to us. I wonder when he's going to pipe up again, right? It's not, it's not the way that they thought about their lives. In fact, some of the most crucial things that you need to know to understand the New Testament and to understand why people are talking about what they're talking about in the New Testament happened during this time period. And so those are some of those things that we will review today. So that's number one. Uh, there were not 400 years of silence. All right. Number two. Do you know anybody named Judas? Do you have any friends named Judas? Or you do? No, not Right? Why don't we name our children Judas anymore? Well, there's an obvious reason for that, right? Judas has a particular reputation uh, in, um, in our nomenclature, right? It's the same reason uh, that, that German people, generally speaking, do not name their children Adolf anymore, right? That there, there is a reputation there that they don't want to recreate. Now, would it be surprising to you, let me ask you this, how common do you think the name Judas was in Jesus' day? So if I were to ask you, like, on a list of the top ten names, where would Judas probably fall in the top ten names during Jesus' day? Just throw out some numbers, what do you think? Two, All right. Two three, four. It's around number three or four or so. Uh, Judas was the third or fourth most popular name in the general time period that, that we are talking about. Why was Judas such a popular name during this time? Well, the answer is Judas Maccabeus, probably. I mean, obviously, uh, it was popular even before Judas Maccabeus. If you go back to the patriarchs, right, one of the patriarchs is Judah, and Judas is the Greek equivalent of Judah. So they're naming their children after their patriarch, but particularly after this time period, around 164, 167 B.C., this name is going to begin to soar in popularity. Why? Because of a guy named Judas Maccabeus, who is in many ways kind of um, accounted for liberating the Jewish people from their Greek overlords. This is the first time, you might say, that the Jewish nation had independence since the Babylonian exile, right? So going all the way back again to the Old Testament, to the time when the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem, after the Babylonians, the Persians come along. After the Persians, the Greeks come along. And it's not until Judas Maccabeus uh, is able to fight against these Syrians, these Greek Syrians, that the Jews are able to achieve independence again. Uh, this becomes a really important moment, but there's another um, 
slide that, that we'll talk about this in a moment. So I'm going to save some of those details for, for the next one. But let me ask you this. Just stop and think about it for a moment. Can you think of other people in the New Testament that are named Judas? And I've given you a hint here. There are at least six people in the New Testament that are named Judas. So one of them we know, obviously, right, is Judas Iscariot, the one that we don't want to name our children after anymore. Uh, I'll give you a hint, too. The name Jude and Judas are actually the same name in Greek. We translate it Jude uh, in English, I think maybe to differentiate it, because we don't want to associate Judes with Judases, but it's, it's the very same name. So, all right, so I, I saw him uh, go up yeah, here. All right, so Jude, the brother of Jesus, is one, right? Yeah, right? So there's actually another apostle. Of the 12 apostles, right, two out of the 12 were named Judas. Uh, and there, yeah, and then John makes that really clear when he mentions that Judas, not Iscariot, right? Not, not, not the bad the Judas, one. the good Judas, right? The other one, right? So we've got at least three there. All right, you hit the three big ones. There are three more kind of obscure ones. All right, any brave souls out here? Jeff, I can see you. Do, you. do you have one in mind at least? Okay, well, I'm not counting him actually, because his name doesn't actually show up that way uh, in the New Testament, I think. Um, so, no, there's some other ones. All right, there's, there's a Judas mentioned in Acts uh, named Judas the Galilean, who led uh, kind of an insurrection out in the desert that um, the kind of Jesus movement people get uh, compared to to some degree. Uh, anyone, anyone else? Is that ringing a bell for anybody? All right, they're all, all the rest are in Acts. There is a, uh, who does Paul stay with when Paul is converted when he goes to Damascus? Anybody remember? He stays with a guy named Judas who lives on Straight Street. Yeah, Judas on Straight Street. So there's a guy named Judas who lives on Straight Street. And then there's one more rather obscure one. After the big debate in Acts 15, when they go and send all the letters out to all the different churches about not having to be circum Gentiles, not having to be circumcised, one of the bearers of that letter is named Judas Barsabas. So, so this is a, the point is simply to tell you, people liked naming their kids Judas during this time. Why did they like naming their kids Judas? They liked naming their kids Judas because who did they want them to grow up to be like? They wanted them to grow up to be like the hero of old, right? The hero of a generation or two past for the same reason that we name our kids after famous presidents or other famous people, right? They, they, were, they had great visions for their children. And there's an irony here. There's a great irony. What do you think Judas Iscariot's parents were hoping he might become when they named him Judas? Right? They, they were hoping that maybe he would be the Messiah, that maybe he would be the next military leader to kind of rise up and defeat the Romans and bring them independence, kind of like Judas Maccabeus had done. And of course, that is not the way the story turns out. But, but you don't appreciate that if you don't know something about the history in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, so that was number two. Do you know anyone named Judas? All right, number three, and kind of a follow-up on this one. The abomination of desolation, right? Or sometimes it's called the abominating sacrilege or the abomination that causes um, desolation. Different, it goes under different terms in the New Testament. You've probably heard this phrase before. Maybe you even have some idea of where it comes from. And we're going to work our way backwards. So Jesus, near the end of the Gospels, he does this in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke, near the end of the Gospels, he's standing up in the temple and he's preaching about kind of some eventual apocalyptic destruction of cataclysmic moments, events. 
And he says this, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation set up where it ought not to be, and then Mark has this kind of aside, let the reader understand, pay attention here, right? Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. What is Jesus talking about there? What is he doing? Well, he's quoting something, right? And he's quoting probably what you think of is as Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. If you go back all the way to Daniel, and it shows up a couple times at Daniel, but this is one of those places. Daniel's mentioning forces sent by him shall occupy. It's kind of a, in, in the context of Daniel, it's, it's a looking forward of this, of this time. Forces sent by him shall occupy and profane the temple and fortress. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering and set up what? The abomination of desolation. What is Daniel talking about? Well, he's not talking about the very same thing that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is using that language to look towards yet a, another future event. What Daniel is referring to is something that happened in between these two, something that you learn about by reading 1 Maccabees, one of these books that makes it into what we call the Old Testament Apocrypha. And in a minute, I'll define some of those terms for you, but I wanted you to get interested in the subject before I gave you boring definitions. So he's basically referring to what is referred to in 1 Maccabees. The 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year they erected an abomination of desolation on the altar of burnt offering. What is First Maccabees talking about? Well, it's the same scene, the same situation that we were just mentioning with Judas Maccabeus. And this is what makes Judas Maccabeus so famous in many ways. This is why Jews from Jesus' time would have hailed him as a hero, would have named their kids Judas. Because what happens is there is kind of an evil ruler by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, right? And he gets this nickname, renames himself Epiphanes, which kind of means like God made manifest in me, right? I am the, um, I am God on earth in a sense. Now the Jews had their own catchphrase for him. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus Madman uh, instead. So they had a little fun with the language there. And why does he get the reputation that he gets? He basically outlaws Judaism. Uh, he has scriptures burnt. He makes circumcision um, outlawed, illegal. You can't practice circumcision. He tries to set up a gymnasium uh, outside, just outside on the other side of the temple in Jerusalem. He's trying to turn Jerusalem into a, into a great Greek city-state. Now, why is that such a problem? Why, what's wrong with setting up a nice gymnasium outside of Jerusalem? Doesn't everybody want to work out a little bit? Isn't that a great thing? Well, it, it matters because what do you know about Greek culture? How did the Greeks work out? Or how about this? What does the word gymnos mean in Greek? Someone knows this, I'm sure. It means naked, right? So, right, so think about that next time you go to the gym. All right, that's, that's what it's named after. Um, so, so he's trying. This is, this is offensive to the Jews, right? This is Antiochus trying to turn Jerusalem into a Greek city, trying essentially to destroy the Jewish religion. And what happens, or the culmination of this, is either he or one of his kind of emissaries burns an unclean sacrifice on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem, which desecrates the temple. Burns, best as, as we can kind of reconstruct, burns a pig, burn, you know, makes a sacrifice of a pig, which is an unclean animal for the Jews. And so this desecrates the temple, and this is kind of the last straw for the Jews, which ultimately then leads to the Maccabean revolt, which is led first by Judas's father and then takes over, Judas himself takes over, and ultimately then leads to them 
slowly but surely declaring their independence as a Jewish people. And a few years after this abomination of desolation, this desolating sacrilege that desecrates the temple, Judas Maccabeus regains control of the temple, dis kind of dismantles the current altar, rebuilds a new altar, rededicates that temple, and that's a holiday that Jews continue to celebrate today. And many of you, I'm sure, know what holiday that is. It is, someone said, it is Hanukkah, right? So this is where Hanukkah comes from. And again, all of that was crucial. The, the Part of the reason that I'm sure you've heard at some point that Jews were expecting some kind of military ruler to lead them as their Messiah, part of all of that stems from these events, stems from them imagining another Judas Maccabeus to come <coughs> and bring them independence, to rededicate the temple, to discover them as a, as a nation again and their own people. And again, you can't really understand the mindset of people in the New Testament until you begin to understand some of these events. And this is a perfect example because it's a chain, right, directly from the Old Testament to the New Testament with what we call the Old Testament Apocrypha right in the middle. All right, so now that I've used all of these um, scary terms, let me define some of them for you. Hopefully I've gotten you a little bit interested so you're willing to sit through these definitions now. Uh, here are some things, uh, some other terms that I'm going to throw out along the way that I think are useful for you to know. And again, for those of you who came in late, there, there are a few handouts floating around. If you didn't get one, I apologize. Uh, don't hesitate to send me an email. I'll gladly send you one so you can see what everybody else saw. So, uh, a few things that you should know. What is the Septuagint? Or the Septuagint? It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So this is before the New Testament exists. This is when Hebrews, Jews, have spread all around what we would call the Roman Empire, but you know what was kind of Greek area at that point. And, um, and, and they get to the point where it's actually useful to translate their scriptures into the Greek language, which is the most common language at this time. And so they translate first just the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and then eventually the rest of what we would call the Old Testament. And we have named that um, a funny kind of name. We call it Septuagint, which is short for 70 in Latin, Septuaginta. And we name it that because there's a funny uh, tradition of there were 70 different translators who all worked separately, and yet who all came out with the exact same translation, which nobody really believes or buys, but we still call it the Septuagint for that reason. Uh, you will notice, therefore, that frequently it is abbreviated with the Roman numerals for 70, LXX, right? So when you see LXX, that's referring to the Septuagint, which is referring to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, right? In other words, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in our terms. All right, two other important terms that you should know from this time period, something called the Old Testament Apocrypha. So these are books that are in the Septuagint, written in Greek, but they never made it into the Hebrew Bible. So it's like a subcategory of the Old Testament, in a sense. Now why that matters is because the Septuagint will become the Bible for the earliest Christians. Right? So when an earliest Christian was referring to the scriptures, they had in mind the Septuagint, which included what we would call, at least from a Protestant point of view, the Old Testament Apocrypha. So this is part of their scriptures. The earliest Christians were reading these books and consider them, as you'll see, essentially on par with many of the other books that we would call the Old Testament. Now, another category, and these get really confusing, and I will gladly admit to you, is referred to as the pseudepigrapha. Technically speaking, these are books that don't make it into the Septuagint, 
And, and the, you can kind of hear by the word itself, it means pseudo, right, and then epigrapha means written or inscribed. So these are kind of falsely inscribed. So these are books whose author, uh, the listed author, is not actually the person that wrote them. Now, the problem with these categories is there are works like that. There are pseudepigraphical works in the apocrypha. There are apocryphal works in the pseudepigrapha. pseudepigrapha. Uh, these categories are kind of mixed up. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the complicating factor is we named all these categories long after the fact, right? And so there isn't a clear line uh, in terms of demarcating them. But you should be aware of them because, again, these are going to show up as either being quoted in the New Testament or being referred to at times in the New Testament. And so it's important to know something about the types of books that are here. Uh, these include things like First Enoch or Jubilees or something like that. All right, the, the next one then that you should know is something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is perhaps the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century, right? So some, some Bedouins, some kind of shepherds were, uh, were hanging around in the desert outside of, uh, kind of out, out, not too far from Jerusalem, and, uh, and they were throwing rocks into a cave, like you do, and, uh, and they hear this crack, and, uh, and it turns out that they break open a jar, and it takes them some time to discover where it is that they threw this rock, but they managed to climb up there, and as they pull out these manuscripts and figure out what they are, they eventually discover that what they have landed on, at least in this case, are copies of the Hebrew Bible that are 1,000 years older than the next oldest copy that we had up till that time. Right, so we had copies of the Hebrew Bible that came from around the year 1000 AD or so, and they find copies of the Hebrew Bible that are from the year 100 BC. So this is amazing for manuscript studies, right? These are the kind of things that happen once in a, um, you know, in a millennium in terms of a discovery. But what this does then is gave us all sorts of insight, not only into how scriptures read during Jesus' time, but also uh, a particular group of people that, written, that wrote and copied out these scriptures during Jesus' time that are called the Essenes. So this becomes a monumental discovery. All right, and then the last term that I want to give you is this term on the bottom here. This is kind of the technical term for the period that we're talking about, and you may have seen it up at the top already, right? We call this term, we call this period the Second Temple Period, and the reason we call it that is because we're very clever, and it's during the time that they built their Second Temple, right? So you see how that worked? So uh, after the Babylonians destroyed the Temple the first time and took the Jews into exile, 586, 587 B.C., the Persians, under Cyrus the Great, let them come back in. They rebuild their temple around 515 B.C. And it lasts all the way up until the Romans destroy it again in the year 70 A.D. And so we very cleverly refer to this period as the Second Temple Period. So you'll hear me use that phrase. Um, people sometimes will use intertestamental period as kind of an equivalent phrase, but the kind of the more accepted term these days is Second Temple Period. All right, so those are the definitions. I meant to say, uh, please uh, feel free to raise your hand or stop me along the way if you have questions or if something I've said was too fast or, or didn't make sense. I'm more than happy to pause and, and take a moment. Did you say the Dead Sea Scrolls were... The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered... Oh, sorry, were written... Uh, written around 100 B, 150, yeah, is probably a good time, B.C., 150 B.C., yeah. Thank you. Why the parenthetical or 135? Ah, yeah, that's a <laughs> tricky one. The, so the Romans come in and destroy uh, the, the Jerusalem temple in the year 70. There is a second Jewish revolt that is referred to as the Bar Kokhba revolt in the year 135, 132 to 135. 
And the Romans come in and do some, um, some re-leveling of Jerusalem at that point. And that kind of seals the deal. If 70 didn't seal the deal, some people will extend the Second Temple period all the way to 135 to say this is, this is really the last time. At this point, Jews are actually officially barred from entering Jerusalem. Um, and that wasn't quite the case in the year 70. So it goes an extra step. Yeah. Oh, except for you, I meant to say. You can't ask questions. No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I got you. <laughs> the Dead Sea Scrolls, the books that were included in that, were they the same as the Old Testaments that we had had before? An excellent question. All right, so his question is, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that we discovered, do they include the same books that are in what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible? And the answer is yes plus, right? So yes and some more, depending on how you define it. Um, so they, almost every book that we would call part of the Old Testament was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, except, uh, you can probably guess which ones, right? Which is the one that doesn't describe the name of God, doesn't use the name of God, yes. except yes. Esther. Um, and then Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of on the edge um, because Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, and we think we have a slight um, fragment of Nehemiah, so probably that included Ezra um, there for that one. So basically every, every book that we would call part of the Old Testament makes it into uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I may have missed one. My Song of Songs might not be in there as well, um, but, but nearly everything. Um, but they also seem to use books that we wouldn't typically quote as scripture. Things like Jubilees seems to have been used by them, and that's part of what we would call the pseudepigrapha, a false category, but what we would call the pseudepigrapha. Or, um, or other, other things that they seem to treat as part of their holy set of books, which maybe even other Jews wouldn't have. So, so, that's, a, so that's the answer to your question in a, in a short version. Yeah. Um, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, textual variants, uh, are those closer to what you see in the uh, Septuagint than over and against the Masoretic text? from a millennium later. All right, you've just thrown out lots of terms here. All right, so the Septuagint, as everyone already knows, right, is, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Masoretic text is kind of our shorthand for the Hebrew Bible itself. So your question is, do the, sets, do the Dead Sea Scrolls land closer to the Greek translation or do they land closer to the later Hebrew version right. that survived? And the answer is, it depends on what book. Some of the books, they are much closer to the Septuagint. Some of the books, they are much closer to the Masoretic text. Some of the books, they are really exact with the Masoretic text. So the book of Isaiah is kind of the common example there, where the, the scroll that they found for Isaiah is very close to the, to the scroll that we have from a thousand years later of Isaiah, which kind of is remarkable in terms of their ability to copy something for so many years and keep it relatively intact. Whereas there are other examples, um, Samuel and Kings are some examples, or Jeremiah is another easy example, where the version that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls or the version that we find in the Septuagint is relatively different. Not in always large significant ways, but there are differences that demonstrate that there are kind of different versions of these texts floating around to some degree. And we, we get little snapshots of them along the way with the evidence that we have left. All right, these are great questions. Let's do our next um, reason, and then we'll continue on. Maybe other questions will come up as we go. So reason number four, why should you read this stuff? Why should you know anything about this? Well, what we call the book of Hebrews in the New Testament seems to be referring to 
what we have now come to call Second Maccabees that shows up in, depending on how you define it, uh, the Old Testament Apocrypha. Here's the case. You all know this passage well, right? The Hall of Faith, as the Hebrew writer is enumerating all of the famous people who have gone before, who showed great faith in God, and you can tell um, the writer realizes he's running out of space as he's only gotten to, like, you know, Exodus uh, <laughs> and, and uh, doesn't, um, <laughs> doesn't know how to continue. And, and he, as, the, as the Hebrew writer is wrapping up, here's what he refers to. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. And just stop and think about that for a second. Can you think of any scene in what we call the Old Testament that that description would apply to? And there isn't really anything that, that fits that description. And we could keep reading others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and prison. We can think of a few scenes like that. Uh, they were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. Uh, they were killed by sword and so forth. Well, generally speaking, those who study Hebrews for a living have landed on a particular scene in 2 Maccabees that they think the Hebrew writer is probably referring to when he describes in particular those who <coughs> refuse to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. So again, this is that same scene, this keeps coming up, this, this Maccabean revolt. And during this Maccabean revolt, Antiochus IV at least according to 2 Maccabees, tried to make examples out of particular Jews and, and kind of hoist them in front of the entire Jewish populace and say, you will eat pork now or you will die. Right? So if you don't um, desecrate your religion and, and eat this unclean food, then, then I will kill you in front of everybody here. And, and there's this particularly poignancy in the book that's now called 2 Maccabees in chapter 7 where a mother and her seven sons are dragged in front of the entire Jewish populace here. And they are forced to decide, will you eat pig or will you die? And each one of them, in turn, one by one, each of the seven sons, oldest mm -hmm. to youngest, and then the mother herself, all refuse to eat pork and instead would rather die for their faith. Mm -hmm. A really moving and powerful scene. And, and I'll read you just this excerpt of it, and it, it's, it's a little drastic, right? So. Um, the first brother had died in this way. They brought forth the second for their sport. They <coughs> tore the skin off his head with his hair and asked him, Will you eat pork rather than have your body punished limb by limb? He replied in the language of his ancestors and said to them, No. Therefore, he in turn underwent tortures as the first brother had done. When he was at his last breath, he said, He's saying this to the, to the king of the Greeks, right? You accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life. But the king of the universe will raise up for us, raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. And that seems to fit really well with exactly what the Hebrew writer is talking about. Here's somebody who refused to be released in order, in a sense, to obtain a better resurrection. So almost certainly, the author of Hebrews was familiar with this story. And my argument to you is, if the people who write the New Testament know these books, then we as the readers of the New Testament ought to be familiar with what they were familiar with. Right? We ought to be reading what they were reading. He doesn't quote it directly, but he seems to be referring to it. And it's not, therefore, so dangerous, I would say. All right, so that's number four. Number, were there questions for that one? All right, number five for top ten reasons that you should be aware of this literature in this time period, Jesus personifies the idea of wisdom. 
Now here's a passage that you know very well. I imagine Matthew 11, 28, 29. Jesus says, Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. A wonderful passage, right? A very comforting passage. Maybe in your... Um, devotional moments, you've thought to yourself, why does Jesus talk about a yoke here anyway? And what does he mean by his burden? And, and why would following Jesus be, you know, a yoke in any sense of the word, a kind of a burden that you put over yourself? Well, I would suggest to you that the answer comes from understanding something about the way that wisdom, the idea or the personification, or actually the woman of wisdom was personified, was imagined during this time. Now here's an excerpt from a work called Sirach, which goes under other names. It goes under Ben Sirah, it goes under Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesi wait, which one is the one in our Bible? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiasticus. Um, I always get those two mixed up now. Um, a problem that you don't have, but you might have someday. Uh, and, and here's what Sirach, it basically it, it's, a, it's a wonderful book of wisdom, kind of like Proverbs. Uh, Sirach was a teacher from this time period who, who is just filled with very many wise sayings. And, and here he's talking about wisdom. And you kind of see some of these ideas already in the Old Testament if you go to Proverbs 8 or other places where wisdom is kind of personified. And you should know that the word for wisdom in Hebrew is a, is a feminine noun. And so wisdom often gets treated as a woman in Hebrew texts for that reason. And so here's Sirach who's talking about with lady wisdom, we might say. And she, he says, put your feet into her fetters, into wisdom's fetters and your neck into her collar. Bend your shoulders and carry her, and do not fret under her bonds. Come to her with all your soul, and keep her ways with all your might, for at last you will find the rest that she gives, and she'll be changed into joy for you. Then her fetters will become for you a strong defense, and her collar a glorious robe. Her yoke is a golden ornament, and her bonds a purple cord. You'll wear her like a glorious robe and put her on like a splendid crown. So imagine, or understand now, the way that they're characterizing wisdom is this woman who kind of puts a, a, a yoke, a bond on you, a burden, and yet in that yoke, in that bond, you find rest, that it's a wonderful thing. And so when Jesus stands up and says, come to me, all you who are heavy, you will find rest in me, put my yoke on you. What is he doing? He's saying, I am wisdom. This wisdom that we've all been talking about, this wisdom that we describe as having this yoke, this, this kind of rest that will be found in her, that's me. That's the role that I play in your lives. Which is something that you can't fully appreciate if you don't know the way that they're talking about wisdom in this time period. What does it mean? Does it mean that Jesus was reading Sirach, right, and borrowing from Sirach? Not necessarily, maybe, right? It's certainly possible. Um, but it doesn't mean that he's quoting Sirach here. What it means is that this is in the air. This is, this is how they talk about wisdom. And we can't fully appreciate the depth of the words of Jesus if we don't know what's going on in his lifetime. If we don't know the way that they're already talking about these terms, if we don't know kind of the, the themes that he's riffing on, in a sense, right? And so again, my argument is, it's not so dangerous. You can read these things and know more about what Jesus is saying by understanding them. All right, that was number five. Number six, this one gets tricky. All right, you may be familiar with the little letter that we call Jude, right? Which really should be called Judas, but we're really uncomfortable calling him Judas. So we call him Jude. And, uh, and partway through this letter, it's so short it doesn't even get chapters, right? Just get verses. Partway through this letter, 
he refers to Enoch. He's talking about these intruders that have entered into the community that he's writing to. And he, and he uses a reference in what we now call First Enoch to describe these intruders. And listen to what he says. He says it was also about these, these intruders, these modern-day intruders, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. And notice this word that he's using here, right? Prophesied. So he's saying this is prophecy. Saying, and he quotes it, Behold, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict everyone of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, for many, many years, we weren't entirely certain what he was citing. We had some ideas based on early Christian references to this, but we didn't have any exact texts of it. But partly through discoveries uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, partly actually through discoveries in uh, Ethiopia, of all places, uh, where some scholars in the, let's see, in the early 19th century and even 18th century did some excavating work and discovered some, um, some ancient texts that had been thought to be missing from all this time. We have discovered a copy of what Jude, apparently, was quoting. And so now we can match his quote to actual Ethiopic texts that, that we now have. And you can see it's not exact, but it's pretty close. And probably the differences are just in terms of translational differences going from maybe Hebrew to Greek to Ethiopic or something like that, um, and not from actual substantive differences. And so here's First Enoch, chapter 1. And behold, he comes with 10,000 holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy the wicked ones and to contend with all flesh concerning everything which the sinners and the wicked ones have done, uh, have done and committed against him. And so it's, it's relatively certain, I would say, that Jude is citing this text. Now, what is this text, right? What is this scary thing called First Enoch? Well, First Enoch is, uh, is a complicated compilation, you might even say, of texts attributed to... Enoch, the very famous figure in Genesis, right, who, who is taken up by God but doesn't actually die. Um, and, and there was great lore about Enoch in the early time period, the time period around Jesus. People had all sorts of ideas and legends that had to do with Enoch and the things that he saw when he was taken up by God. And the idea essentially is Enoch, because he was taken up, had kind of special access to God and knew things that other people didn't know. And so books were written in his name, books to kind of explain and describe certain things. And Jude, apparently, was reading those books. And Jude, apparently, decides to quote those books. And later, Christians then decide to put Jude into the New Testament, which I imagine makes you a little uncomfortable, right? It certainly made me a little uncomfortable the first time that I discovered this. And so there are various things that you can do with this, and, and I have different ideas for, for how to understand and appreciate this. Um, but I don't think my task today is, is to fix it all for you. Um, my task is to introduce it to you and let you kind of wrestle through it a little bit, right? To think about what, what are the implications of the idea that Jude is quoting what we would call First Enoch, which we would categorize as pseudepigrapha. But there it is, right in what we now call the New Testament. If nothing else, it should help you maybe find some relief that it's okay to be reading some of these books because this is what the earliest Christians were reading. And it's okay to know something about them because we can't understand what the earliest Christians were thinking if we don't read some of the stuff that they were thinking about. 
that would be at least where I would where I pause there maybe. Although I, I will uh, open it up to questions uh, now and later if you if you have some specific thing that you'd like to ask about Jude or what Jude is doing here. I'll I'll note this that interestingly remember these kind of categories I've created. No New Testament writer directly quotes what we would call the Old Testament Apocrypha, right? So the books that make it into the Septuagint but weren't in the Hebrew Bible. But we do have New Testament writers who directly quote what we would call the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. So, so there's an interesting balance there. All right, so that was number six. Uh, number seven, for top ten reasons why you should know something about this time period and uh, allow it to inform your understanding of the New Testament and Christianity in general, you know, I'm sure, that Jesus has all sorts of Sabbath controversies, right? All sorts of arguments with people over what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Uh, one of the more famous ones is in Matthew chapter 12 when there's a man with a withered hand who enters into the synagogue. And those who are there want to test Jesus, and they, and they want to see what he's going to do. Is he going to heal this man because it's Sabbath, right? And there is some disagreement over what does it mean to do work on the Sabbath? Would healing someone mean work or not? And so what does Jesus say? He comes up with kind of a hypothetical, right? He says, all right, suppose one of you has only one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? And his Assumption is, of course you would, right? If you, if you have an animal and it's your only animal, then if it falls into a pit, you're going to pick it up, even though it's Sabbath, even though that as you're doing that, technically speaking, you're kind of doing some work, right? But, but the greater good is what's involved here, and it's okay to pick up your animal on the Sabbath. So he says, how much more valuable, then, is a human being than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and then Jesus proceeds, of course, to heal this man. Well, that's not as much of a hypothetical as perhaps you thought. Because as we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we actually had access to this document before that, but it's counted among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and we, our understanding of it was further enlightened by having discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's this document called the Damascus Document, which was written by the same people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Another group of Jews, so you're familiar with the Pharisees from the New Testament and the Sadducees from the New Testament, but there's another group of Jews during this time that is referred to as the Essenes. And they're the people who wrote these Dead Sea Scrolls that I mentioned to you earlier. At least that's our best guess. And here's what they said about whether you can or cannot help an animal on the Sabbath. No one should provoke his servant. I think that means um, hit in some way, right? <coughs> physically abuse. No one should physically abuse his servant, his maid, or his employee on the Sabbath. So that's work. You can't hit people on the Sabbath, just so you know. Uh, no one should help an animal give birth on the Sabbath. And, look at this one, if it falls into a well or a pit, he may not lift it out on the oh. Sabbath. Right? So the Essenes would actually have disagreed, apparently, with what Jesus presumes the Pharisees would have agreed to. The Essenes seem to think that you can't help an animal out of, the Sabbath, uh, of a pit on the Sabbath. And then, listen to this, any living human who falls into a body of water or a cistern shall not be helped out with a ladder or a rope or an instrument, which I think means that... You can help them out with your own hand, but you can't use an instrument to help them. Using some kind of extra thing from the Essene point of view would entail some kind of additional work, but just using your own hand would, would be okay. Why does any of this matter? It matters because now suddenly you realize you have jumped in on an ongoing dialogue between various groups of Jews in this time period when you jump in on what Jesus has to say about the Sabbath. <coughs> 
this isn't just Jesus kind of floating down from heaven and saying, hey, I know you haven't talked about the Sabbath at all, but let me give you some more ideas, right? This is Jesus entering into a dialogue that they have already been having and presenting his point of view, which is in partial agreement with some of them and partial disagreement with some of them. But you can't understand that if you aren't aware of something about this time period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you don't know something about uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and what they are and what this group is, then some of these conversations that they're having won't mean anything to you, or at least won't mean as much as they could mean to you. All right, any questions on that one? Yes, it's neither, right? Again, these are false categories, but it would it would be called part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay. technically, which which, generally speaking, kind of isn't isn't part of either of those two categories. Although there are things that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are both part of the Pseudepigrapha and the Apocrypha. The the easier answer is this is a sectarian document that pertained only to the Essenes. This is something that they wrote for themselves. Did you have a question? Do we know what year this was written in? Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably, again, 200, 150, 200 BC would be. Uh, the Damascus document is one of the earlier documents for the Essenes, so it's kind of near the beginning of when, when they emerged as a group, so that would put it closer to, the, to 150, 200 or something. Yes. Is this all part of Second Temple with Judaism? Yes. And the dialogue and the Absolutely. Yeah. So the question was, is, is all of this part of Second Temple Judaism? And yeah, basically everything that I'm covering is all within the realm of Second Temple Judaism. Even though Herod's temple was the third temple? Uh, it depends on how you count them, I suppose, yeah. But they but generally speaking, um, they count Herod's temple as part of the second temple. He didn't rebuild it, he just he just renovated it. Yeah, he didn't. He just added to it in a sense. Uh, yes. But my understanding is that that's, that wasn't the norm of how the regular Jewish community thought of this. And that's an excellent point. And, and I also, my understanding, and maybe this is wrong, but my yeah. understanding was that they were referring to people outside their. They were referring to instances outside their community. Well, uh, are you talking about the Damascus document? Yeah. Uh, that I I I would be surprised of because. Because they're a sectarian group, they're, they're probably describing their own community, not how to treat outsiders, although it'd be worth looking into the context to, to confirm that. Um, but, but I will absolutely reiterate your first point, which is, let me be clear, right? The Essenes do not represent mainstream Judaism necessarily here, right? So it's not like all Jews are leaving all their kids in pits everywhere or something like that. This is, this is not how they think. This is not how they operate. The, all, the point is simply this is an ongoing dialogue, right? They're trying to figure out we want to be the people of God and we want to honor the laws of God. God says to rest on the Sabbath, so what does rest entail? How do we best be the people of God and, and follow the laws of our God? And they're not sure. They don't, they don't know exactly how to do it. And so because the, the Old Testament, at least in this particular case, is, is slightly open, <coughs> slightly ambiguous, right? And so this is what they're wrestling with, but by no means uh, is this a characterization of all Jews. Yeah. All right, this is actually provoking a couple of questions for me. All right. I don't know if you're going to get into Luke 6 or not in this section on saving on the Sabbath. No, no. Because, you know, that's where, you know, the guy comes and Jesus says, is it lawful to save life on the Sabbath or to <coughs> take it to be yeah. killed? Yeah. Is this, I mean, I, I'm wondering, is that a reference to First Maccabees where they're arguing, should we fight on the Sabbath or not? Yeah. Because I'm, I, that's, that's what I've always heard in that, or have for a long time. The other thing that's interesting is it sounds to me like what Jesus may be doing, just to the extent that the, the scenes were sectarian, 
maybe, uh, you know, was he basically saying, look, you know, you guys think I'm crazy, but, like, we agree on this. It's, it's, these weird guys out in, out, you know, <laughs> you know out, out there yeah. on the other side of the Jordan are saying this, but, uh, you know, I, you and I should be on the same page here. Because, I mean, it seems to me that Jesus and the Pharisees were fairly close. Absolutely, yeah. Interpretively. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I, uh, I, I probably can't comment on the, on the Luke 6 thing. I think, I think that's a, a, certainly a possibility that, that Jesus may have in mind the problem of, or the or the, the opponents of Jesus may have in mind the problem of, hey, can we fight on the Sabbath? What do we do if an army is attacking us, right? Which was a was a live question for them during the Maccabean Revolt. Um, but yeah, and, and in this particular case, and it probably it, it helps just to, to have it said if, it's, if it hasn't been said enough, right? Jesus and the Pharisees agree on like 90% of the stuff, right? 99% of the stuff. It's just a few small things that end up becoming the, the major parts of um, conflict that we kind of eavesdrop on in, in the New Testament where they disagree. But the, by far, the majority, I would say, of Pharisees were um, sincere believers of God who, who wanted to live out their faith as best they could. And then there were other Pharisees that Jesus ends up having conflict with that, um, that are probably not representative of the whole, that they get this reputation that then we assume all Pharisees have. Um, so yeah, so Jesus and the Pharisees are very close on this point, I think. He's taking them kind of a step further. Yeah? I would think this would be very beneficial then in the sense of understanding that many times we think of what Jesus says is accredited to thinking of Pharisees and Sadducees. So when you when you look at this from the understanding of maybe a teaching of the Essenes, yeah. that, like you said, it's more so, you know, because a lot of times we just think that we accredit everything. Well, that's just their teaching, you know. That, you know that's what, and so he's maybe, you know, kind of taking a taking a different side from that. But but when you accredit, maybe to understand, like you said, like listen, we agree on these things. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Common ground. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Jesus is in continuity with his people. Right. Yes. Je- Jesus is in far more continuity than he is in discontinuity with his people. And that's part of the point of this, right? The point is we need to understand something about what happened right before Jesus so that we can understand Jesus, or at least so that we can better understand Jesus. All right, we've got three left. I think we can make it. Uh, Number eight, for top ten reasons why you should know something about this time period, fills in missing scripture. Now, this is an interesting one. If you were to go back and pull out your King James Bible, and read, for instance, and we could do this with a few other places, but if you read Psalm 145, uh, I imagine many of you know what an acrostic poem is, right? An acrostic poem is when you um, start each line by the next letter of the alphabet. Maybe you did this as a kid, right? So I'm Nick, I'm neat, and I don't know, um, in- yeah, intelligent, but that's self-serving, um, cool, but that's not true, kind, maybe, right? So, so that spelled my name there, right? Well, uh, the Hebrew writers, right, particularly the psalmists, loved to do something like this, right? They loved to create prayers and psalms out of the Hebrew alphabet. And they did this often in the psalms, and you'll see sometimes little footnotes that say this is an acrostic poem. Well, Psalm 145 is an acrostic poem, and as you're reading through it in Hebrew, you will discover this is Lamad El Mim, that's M, and then uh, you get to Samek, but you have skipped the noon character. That something happened in this Hebrew manuscript, and it jumps right over what we would call N, essentially. 
And the copy of the Masoretic text that ends up being translated to form what becomes the King James Bible doesn't have this line in it. And so if you pick up the King James Bible, you'll discover that, oh, you don't see it in English because it's not in alphabetical order quite that way, but you go from M to, and you should have N, but then you skip on to, almost looks like an O, but it's not an O, right? It's, a, it's an S sound. Um, well, when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we discovered this beautiful Psalm scroll. And in this Psalm scroll, it had Psalm 145. And in Psalm 145, it had the missing N line. So we were able to fill in. So now if you pick up a modern English Bible, basically any modern English Bible, I've got the NRSB here, but the NIV or any of these would do it. What you will discover is that verse 13 is a lot longer than it used to be. Uh, we didn't renumber the verses because that would get really complicated. We've just made verse 13 longer, and we've used the information that we determined from discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls to allow us to fill in this line that had probably dropped out of the original text. Let me point out a couple things, though, before you get too scared, right? Uh, we have the Septuagint, right? So we have the Greek translation. The Greek translation had this line in it already, right? So we, it's not like we didn't know what it said. We just didn't have a, Hebrew, a good Hebrew version of it. In fact, we actually had one old Hebrew manuscript that also had this line in it. So, so we even had a version of it in Hebrew, but not the version that the King James Bible was, was based on. So it, it hadn't entirely disappeared. We had, we had awareness of it, but with, with the Psalm scroll being found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we were able to put it back in again. And there are one or two other examples like this that you could look at in the Old Testament, where something that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls allowed us to fill in something that had otherwise gone missing in our later copies of, of the Bible. So knowing this stuff or having this stuff becomes crucial even for being able to read what we think is the oldest version or the oldest reconstructed version of our text as it is. All right, number nine. Our oldest Bibles have them. Now, I hinted at this earlier. Uh, if you were to pick up the two oldest Greek Bibles that we have, and these are Greek Bibles that have both what we would call the Old Testament and the New Testament in them, and you look through, again, what we would call the Old Testament, I've had to abbreviate it just for simplicity, what you will discover is amid all of the normal books that you're used to seeing, if you come from a Protestant background, what else do you see here, right? So we've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, oh, and then Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, that's the one I mentioned to you, Esther, but then Judith, Tobit, uh, Baruch, the Epistle of Jeremiah, or over here, again, Tobit, 1st Maccabees, and 4th Maccabees, and a few of these others. And what, and what else do you notice? Did they relegate them all to the end because they are a separate section of the Old Testament? They didn't. They, they are scattered all about in the middle, which tells you something about at least how Christians in the 4th century were reading what we would call the Old Testament. They included within their Old Testament what we would call the Old Testament Apocrypha, right? So this is part of their Bibles. This is what earliest Christians are reading. Or here's a good quote for um, a restorationist movement. Uh, this is from Lee Martin McDonald in a book he wrote called Forgotten Scriptures, and it hit kind of home for us. Uh, I have said for years now that there's nothing wrong with the church today being informed by the same literature that informed the early church. Indeed, many of the most conservative Christians have urged that we follow the example of the early church, right? And all of you are amening at this point, until you get to the next line. But they often hesitate if the texts and books 
were welcomed by many Christians before the canonization of the Bible in the 4th and 5th centuries, right? So we want to recreate the early church, but we don't want to read anything that the early church read. We want to recreate the early church, but we don't want access to the actual Bibles that they were using at that time, because that makes us uncomfortable, because that gets kind of scary for us. Uh, an additional point on this set of points is that if you were to pick up a modern Catholic Bible, if you were to pick up a modern Greek or Russian Orthodox Bible, what you would discover is, in fact, what we are calling the Old Testament Apocrypha are still in their Old Testament and also scattered all throughout. Not a separate section, but scattered throughout. Now, I will certainly say that they have a slightly different classification for these texts, so they're not exactly read on the same level always, but they're there. And if, if you want to be in dialogue with your brothers and sisters in the Catholic faith or the Orthodox faith, if you want to just be able to communicate with them, it might help to be at least somewhat cognizant of how their Bibles are different than your Bible, presuming that you are not from that faith. All right, and the final, uh, tenth and perhaps most important reason that we should be aware of and know something about this time period is it, it's filled with lessons that talk about remaining faithful in a time of pluralism, in a time of persecution. Maybe that sounds familiar to you in some way. Uh, the Jewish faith at this time was by far a minority. And if you think about Antiochus IV, right, and, and what led to the Maccabean Revolt, him trying to outlaw Judaism, if you just think about Greek culture in general pushing against the Jewish religion, what you find is not all, but many of these texts are texts that are written out of a desire to be faithful Jews, faithful people of God, in a time where all of society and culture is pushing against that. Maybe that's somewhat relevant to our lives today, right? Maybe you can glean something from that. Here's a great quote for you. This is from Judith, a, a book in what we call the Old Testament Apocrypha. Is a prayer that she's praying. For your strength does not depend on numbers, nor your might on the powerful, but you are the God of the lowly, helper of the oppressed, upholder of the weak, protector of the forsaken, savior of those without hope. That sounds like my God. Right? That sounds like the God that we pray to. And so I would suggest to you that there's actually a great deal of good material in this time period in these books that you can glean from that will be directly relevant to the lives that at least many American Christians find themselves in, um, if not Christianity on kind of the Western scale. Uh, while I'm on this slide, let me commend to you this book, and I have a, a pile of books over here that you can come down and, and browse through if you want to, but this one is a really nice one. If, if I've piqued your interest in some way and you'd like to kind of dive next into this, here's a good first step. There's a historical novel written by a very good New Testament scholar named David De Silva, and this, the novel is called A Day of Atonement, and it's written like a story, it's written like a narrative, but the, De Silva has done tremendous and excellent research, he's, a, he's an expert on this time period and on these writings, and so everything that you find in there is very well, is very accurate to this time period, and it is a nice introduction, I would say, a very easy introduction to knowing why this time period is important, knowing what some of these books are about, knowing who's kind of the key characters in it. And it's in, in the guise of a novel, right, in the guise of a narrative. So it's actually kind of entertaining and fun to read along the way. I have a copy in the front here if you want to take a look at it. Uh, it's also listed on the back of the handout there among some other books. So I think I've exhausted my time. I apologize because I wanted to leave some time for questions, but I better release you. But I'll stand up here for a little while if you have more questions. Thank you for your patience, uh, and thank you for your